It's Thursday, December 28th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Gist, a podcast, which brings me to the best podcasts of the year. The best podcast of 2022 was, I believe, Sold a Story. It's hard to recognize that you believed in something so much that now the research is like blowing out of the water. It makes you feel gullible. It makes you feel sort of played in a way. No one wants to be told that what they're doing is wrong or that you've harmed kids. Like, that's a really, it's terrible to feel. I recommend it. It's about how they taught or mistaught teaching in the United States. What about this last year? Well, there were a couple of podcasts from big houses, big companies that really did a great job. I loved the retrievals from serial production. The nurse sees herself as the stable parent. That is who she needs to be. But now she is doing this thing, this thing that she needs. In fact, she needs it to remain stable. Sometimes she tries to stop, but she can't. She can go for a couple days without using. But as the withdrawal symptoms build, she starts again. What she does is she removes the fentanyl from the vial with a syringe and then replaces it with saline, one clear liquid with another no one can see. She does this uncountable times. And she returns an uncountable number of these vials that say they contain fentanyl, but actually contain saline, to the stock of drugs at work. I have to say, just to show I'm not totally in the bag for cereal, the coldest case in Laramie, now doing that thing where they pull the rug out from under you, don't want to give anything away, but then again, they didn't either to their discredit. In other words, what I'm saying is, if we knew at the end what we knew at the beginning, we might not have been so compelled to listen all the way through. Another great podcast out there. By the way, most of these podcasts on the list of best of aren't the ones I listen to the most, aren't even the ones I might consider the best. No denigration to them. They're the best of in the category of podcasts that makes best of lists, which are highly produced narrative podcasts. Now, one exception to that, but I will put on this list too. It is highly produced. It is uh, episodic. It is not telling one story. It is Search Engine by PJ Vote. Great, great podcast. You asked your mom a question recently. Do you remember what the question was? Why don't you eat human heads? Why were you wondering about that? Because I was asking my dad what else I could eat for dinner. And did you suggest a human head or did he suggest a human head? I did. And why do you think you were hungry for a human head? Because I I know you eat cow. Yeah? Because that's like beef. Another podcast that has been on a lot of people's lists and deservedly so is Think Twice, the Michael Jackson podcast. Immediately, the principal from Gavin's school contacted the Los Angeles Department of Children and Family Services. Then, the feminist attorney Gloria Allred, who had briefly represented Jordan Chandler back in the 90s, publicly called for an investigation. I think it's time for them to interview each and every child who has been in Michael Jackson's bedroom or bed, or in his home, without the presence of their parents. I mean, if there were a Mount Rushmore of podcasting, Leon Nafak would be allowed to see it. Hell, he'd be on it. That's where I was going with that. I actually think his other podcast this year, his Bernie Getz podcast, Vigilante, was even better than the Michael Jackson podcast. Perhaps the best podcast on no one's list, and maybe just the best podcast of 2023, was The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Is there a set of circumstances or underlying characteristics about a society that make it more likely to succumb to a witch trial frenzy? I think we tend to see that kind of fear when there's political dislocation of some kind. So much of witchcraft is about assigning blame and discharging one's anxiety and political dislocation will make people feel that they are on edge and insecure and therefore more likely to point fingers. Now, I have to tell you, people in the podcast industry would tell me, Soto Voce, would tell me out of earshot 
of anyone. Oh, what a great podcast. But no, they couldn't put this on the list. I don't know. Maybe the people who compiled the list honestly didn't like it that much or were so offended that it was trying to, I don't know, I don't want to denigrate it, not offended, or were so unconvinced by what they were trying to do, which is to give you some perspective of why J.K. Rowling thinks what she does about trans issues and talked a lot about trans issues in general. So, you know, maybe the reviewers just didn't care for it in all honesty. But I know that were it not for subject matter that is seen as radioactive and that will certainly bring heaps of condemnation on you if you do even a toe touch of saying publicly, what a great podcast. If not for that phenomenon, I think it would have been on many lists. It certainly should have been on many lists. In many ways, it's what we want a podcast to be and to do. And another one totally different that wasn't on a lot of lists, though I saw it on one or two, and I talked about it on my show, Hooked on Freddy. He's wanking off the dolphin. That's the words he used, he's wanking off the dolphin. Peter denies using those exact words. But whatever words were used, the meaning is the same. It's almost too awful for Alan to comprehend. He's been accused of masturbating Freddy. It is the best English-based trial of a man who was once arrested for masturbating a dolphin. That was an excellent and just a little bit of an odd podcast. I'm glad I found it. Now, on this show, I'm going to bring you two conversations I had with podcasters. The first will be to replay the podcast, The 13th Step, the interview with Lauren Chulian, who is the reporter behind that podcast. She's from New Hampshire Public Radio, and it was was an excellent podcast, a really good interview, and Lauren went through hell to put it together. But first, we shall play you an interview I did with Sonari Glinton, and this one is about his podcast, Shattering the System. It is about the crimes of Democratic donor and L.A. denizen Ed Buck, Sonari Glinton, Shattering the System, and then a little later, Lauren Trulian. Stay tuned for that. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shattering the System is a new podcast hosted by, produced by, Sonari Glinton. Sonari, you know, from such guest hosting gigs as The Gist. It is about a homicide, two homicides, in fact, in West Hollywood. 
I can't exactly call it a murder at this point, and that is interesting, although some degree of justice was ultimately visited upon the hmm, living individual who is involved in the homicide. Sonari, welcome back to The Gist. It's good to be with you. So I haven't said the name Ed Buck, but let's start there. Who was, is Ed Buck? Ed Buck was, is a, uh, a man who lived in West Hollywood for about 30 years. He uh, was born in Steubenville, uh, Ohio, where, uh, which is also known for uh, giving us Dean Martin, moved to Arizona, made a bit of money, and got into politics uh, opposing Evan Meacham, which for those of us who might remember him, he was a governor in Arizona who ended up uh, getting thrown out of office. It was, uh, But that's where Ed Buck first sort of got into politics. And he moved into West Hollywood, and over the course of his time here, gave about half a million dollars to local politics. And, you know, this is West Hollywood kind of being a new new city. You can consider him, you know, uh, one of the people who is not quite at the founding, but in the early years of West Hollywood. Right. And we should say, as your show does, Evan Meacham was recalled largely based, or I don't know, largely, but Right in the middle of it was Ed Buck. So he came to Hollywood as a rich guy who had at least a scalp, um, who had done some good if you were a Democratic operative, you know, struck out against a much loathed Republican. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he came here and then became a, a Democratic donor for the most part. And, you know, he gave money at about, you know, $1,000, $5,000 increments to the tune of half a million dollars. And you think... Eh, that doesn't seem like that much money. But, you know, West Hollywood is interestingly powerful, right? Um, because it is one of the wealthiest enclaves in America. And sometimes we had a participation rate of about 17%. So you might have a candidate who got a total votes of like 3200 So $5,000 to a local race meant a lot. And yeah. You know, and that that is that is why you would call him a political donor. But at some point, he, like many, many people in West Hollywood and many gay men, uh, fell into the lure of methamphetamine. And that is a pivotal part of uh, the story in changing his life. Right. So we should, though, point out that exactly what you're pointing out, that he showed uh, an ability to use leverage um, without maybe donating so much money, but get a lot of results, a lot of bang, uh, no pun intended, a lot of bang for his buck with his political donations. So he lives in West Hollywood. It's a predominantly gay uh, city. He is gay. He then becomes, or at some point along the line, starts using methamphetamine. And just for my audience who may not know, and you're uh, podcast is much about this. You know, we have to get into the sociology of this. This is not uncommon in the gay community, right? No, I mean, you know, meth or, you know, another thing we realize is drug use is is really a part of the story. And you can count this, you know, along with fentanyl. Part of why we he ends up being caught by the long arm of the law is because of the opioid crisis and the way that the government sort of changed its view on overdoses, right? It used to be yeah. just, he said, he said, if it were an overdose and what he has been accused of and was found guilty of is providing a lethal dose. Let's get to that. What was, other than him having some prominence as a donor, what put him on the radar of law enforcement? Well, what put him on the radar is that, you know, many people in his building would see black men exiting in a stupor. You know, there was, you know, uh, a story of a black man stand, you know, screaming his name, standing in front of the building, obviously high and masturbating outside. So that like brings attention when, you know, this white man has a parade of young black men, mainly young, mainly black gay men coming into his apartment. When one of his, uh, neighbors questioned him. He said that he was a social worker and he was that that he was helping these men. Um, it turns mm. out that on the street, uh, his 
apartment became known as the gates of hell because if you went in his apartment, it was sort of beyond a drug den. It was, he was, his particular fetish was, he was a part of party and play, which is using drugs like, you know, meth and then going on sort of extended sex binges. And that is sort of the play and uh, the party and play community. What was different about at Buck is that he paid young men to shoot them up with methamphetamine, which is he took something that maybe someone might be smoking meth, but it's a real large jump to go to slamming it, as they call it, and inject being injecting with it. And we know now that it wasn't always one, he paid people to do this. And he often was providing the first dose or getting young men hooked on this drug or tricking them into taking this drug and getting them hooked all kinds of perversions in this way of like, you know, getting young men and, you know, seeing them writhing in pain. Young men would go to the sheriff's office and say that he was doing this to them and they would get turned away. So to lay the scene so everyone understands, this was uh, a man who would hire other men, sometimes not pay them, sometimes pay them, uh, have sex with them, do drugs with them. It wasn't exactly consensual drug use, though maybe at some times it was because he had a preferred method of administering the drugs that they had maybe never done, slamming the drugs, which causes actual physical pain. And so therefore it was much more coercive than consensual drug use. Um, there were complaints. Uh, you've detailed a few of them, but when did the first body show up? Um, in July of 2017, Jamel Moore was found dead in Ed Buck's apartment of a meth overdose. There was bags of meth there were needles, there was a cabinet, there was all kinds of evidence there. Uh, five days after his death, it was ruled an accidental overdose and the case was closed. Mm -hmm. And Jamel Moore has a diary that says that Ed Buck shot him up, got him addicted, and he had been to police. And five days later, the case is closed and it turns out, well, this guy is you know, friends with every, you know, muckety muck in the West Hollywood City Council, that right there caused a firestorm here in West Hollywood. And it showed the sort of divide, you know, between, you know, homeowners and renters, you know, uh, black and white, you know, all of the, you know, woke gays and baby boomers, you could see all the divides in this one story. What was the official line uh about not prosecuting in that case and who was articulating that line? Well, uh, one of the most interesting things about this is that Jackie Lacey, who is the first woman and the first black person to become the LA district attorney, failed to uh, press charges because essentially she was saying that we're not going to be able to get a murder charge with you know a jury of his peers. One of the things that you know, she was doing is making a political calculation in a very complex county, right? And as she would argue, she didn't have the law that would put him in jail for a good enough time. Turns out that there is a federal statute that gives a mandatory minimum of 20 years for administering a lethal overdose, essentially. Right. Yeah, she doesn't have that. But the federal authorities, uh, as you know, and as you reported, different administrations have different uh, amounts of emphasis. So the law is on the books. But how do you actually prosecute the law is a question. In July 2017, we all know that the Trump administration was extremely slow in ramping up uh, and appointing their own uh, people inside the Department of Justice. So maybe at that point, there was not a theory of prosecution on the federal side. And you just told us there were a lot of disincentives on the state side to pursue a case. Yeah. And then what, what happened was you got Nick Hanna, who is the uh, U.S. attorney for the Central District of California, which covers Los Angeles. And he is, you know, a political operative, a political appointee of Trump. But looking around at this spike in overdose deaths, and he sees as a prosecutor an opportunity, right? We have this statute 
let's now use it. And that is eventually what gets that book because it takes more than two people dying as an apartment. There's two people died in his apartment. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. So yeah. we talked about Jamel Moore about a year and a half later, Timothy, Timothy Dean, very similar circumstance, dead in his apartment after doing drugs. Yeah. And again, the coroner comes, checks, and essentially the case is closed, right? Mm. This, and in this moment, the feds and the community has now gotten really upset about this and is wondering why is this not happening? Why is this prosecution not happening? Well, why, why is this, this prosecution case not being brought? Right. Yeah. And the sheriff's then understanding this new statute reopens an investigation. There is a third victim who essentially comes to in the same spot that Jamel and Timothy did. And he runs to a local uh, gas station and calls the police and testifies. And that it is in that case in September of 2019, it was, it only takes less than a week for Ed Buck to be arrested. Okay. And he was arrested, but it was, as you lay out the federal government that brought the charges. And I wanted to ask you about this. So officially, uh, they were responding to a rise in fentanyl deaths. They were trying to get, you know, as a Republican or conservative administration is wont to do, tough on crime, tough on drugs. But I was thinking of the other political considerations. I remember hearing about the case and the first word in most headlines was Democrat and the second word was donor. Mm -hmm. Your series talks a lot about how these are the most vulnerable, some of the most vulnerable people in society. They're black, they're gay, they're doing drugs. Maybe they struggle with addiction. They're not wealthy. That's why they have to take on sex work. So they're disposable. But I think at least the pitch is when people are running for office that there are people who will ignore the disposable people and there is a party or at least a uh, portion of a party that wants to pay attention. But that was exactly skewed in this case. Why was it the case that the Democrat, democratically dominated and democratically uh, controlled apparatus and levers of government was much less interested in this prosecution than the federal government uh, ultimately. Well, I think uh, if you you got to have some sympathy for a local prosecutor in a in a county that's as big as L.A. County, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. Jackie Lacey, you know, is spends 30 years climbing the ranks of the LA DA's office as a black woman. She's going like the way that she wins is being quote tough on crime. And yes. then all of a sudden you have people, you know, the court of public opinion saying, Ed Buck killed these people. Right now, again, now what the feds got him on was providing a lethal dose, right? Not on sort of a murder charge, right? And she's dealing with the sheriff's office that bungles, right? So she's caught between a rock and a hard place. And as my uh, a lawyer friend of mine said to me, you know, it's the federal government. They print their own money. Yeah. Like when they want to go after you, they got you. And I think where really the politics comes in is that as progressive as West Hollywood says it is, there is an incredibly stark racial line. It is a very white city. It's a very wealthy city. And as progressive as it may be, you know, it is, you know, I get stopped on the street for walking. Yeah. And we go, right. So that is the, I mean, that's a large part of the frustration is that, you know, gay black men are disposable in our society, full stop. But the politics is really, to me, how angry Jackie Lacey was going to be about a constituency that wasn't giving her dollars and wasn't bringing her votes. Yeah. That to me is like, if this were a white gay man, I, I think that the resources of the local DA might've been, you know, put forward more. Yeah. I take your point. I really do. And I'm also hearing that, you know, Jackie Lacey did not get elected as a quote unquote progressive prosecutor and she got elected and she needed to run on law and order. I understand all of that. But I did have this thought. Did the idea of progressive politics in any way lead to justice? I would say that the idea of 
uh, either the best case you could make is it really, um, you know, they taught progressives or whoever wants to articulate a progressive agenda, maybe talks a big game, but it didn't come into play. I see many examples in your story of how some of the tenets of progressive politics got in the way of actual justice, you know, postmodernism and trying to, you know, d- d- be a little, ha- be hands off with uh, communities that maybe the um, power structure isn't incredibly comfortable with or feels that they have to walk around gingerly. And I think maybe you could say in this case, just the straightforward, what's the law? He broke the law. We could prosecute him based on pretty black and white ideas of morality. In this case, serve justice better. I mean, you know, this is not about progressivism. This is like, he chose his victims because people don't give a damn about people who do sex work. I mean, that's the, so that's this, he's the cynical party in looking at, oh, I'm going to, he knows that there are 42,000 homeless people in Los Angeles. They look like me, Mike. Like, I know that you don't give a fuck about gay black men. I know the world does not. These people disappear and no one cares. What is actually unusual in this case is that he got caught and the community here said, hey, they're gay blacks dying. We're not going to let the powerful, you know, and that eventually happened. I mean, that's the the thing that you would want to happen eventually happened. I mean, that is what is sort of four years to the day that Jamel died. He is Ed Buck was found guilty and his mother got the justice that she wanted. I mean, there's still a civil case in those things. What's really annoying is that how many more people like this, how many, you know, we don't know how many victims Ed Buck had, but we do know that this was a small sample of the victims. And we know that Ed Buck isn't the first dude with power to think, hmm, (laughs) like which vulnerable population am I going to prey on? So Ed Buck is in prison. He's serving a 30-year sentence. They're, of course, appealing aspects of the sentence. But what, if anything, institutionally ripples or in the culture ripples beyond this particular prosecution? Well, I think one of the more interesting things is that Jackie Lacey, the DA, lost her race. Um, She was uh, replaced by George Gascon, who is considered a progressive. Essentially, uh, the city council in West Hollywood was almost completely overturned. Mm-hmm. And many of the politicians who gave who Ed Buck gave money have turned that money back, though there are still some major ones who haven't. I think really you've heard and seen that uh, West Hollywood, which had been pretty dominated by white men on the city council. And, you know, that is really what's changed. I don't know if uh, institutionally anybody cares about gay black men anymore. I know that they don't. But here you don't get the sense that this sort of thing would happen. Uh, There's still a lot of room to be done on the sex apps and how people can be made safer. There's still, you know, a lot of room on, you know, just training local police about how to deal with different communities. One of the most ridiculous things I heard was that the police in West Hollywood were trained on the flags. Like, that's how they... Wait, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Trained on the flags. Exactly what it means. I don't know what that means. They trained... They got a... They did... Of all the training that you could have gotten about dealing with gays and lesbians, what they were trained on were flags. Oh, they were told about the rainbow flag. We don't know if they were... That's the only... In a public meeting, that's the, the, the sergeant who's in charge of West Hollywood. He said, well, we learned about the flags. Not the rainbow flags, not the pride flags. The flags... Right. That's the I mean, that is the I thought it was like some complex policing tactic that I hadn't heard of. No, no. No, no, Trained on the flags. Yeah, yeah. We were trained on the flags. Okay, I got it. The name of the podcast is Shattering the System. It is hosted, reported, produced by Sonari Glinton. It is an iHeart radio podcast and is available wherever you get that particular form of entertainment and information. Sonari, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike.
Every reporter wants to get a lot of attention for their work. Lauren Chuljan, a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio, did get a lot in a way of the worst kind. But when you really think about it, and as you will learn, in a way, a kind that exemplifies what reporters are going through and does draw more attention to the story that she was covering. She was looking into, in her state of New Hampshire, the rehab industry and abuses among the people who run rehab clinics. Sexual abuses, Me Too abuses, and just runaway unaccountability. It's all contained in a new podcast called The 13th Step. And along the way, in reporting this story, Lauren became a target, which really shows, I think, how deep the rot in some of this industry may just go. Lauren, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Good to see you. As I listened to this really well-done podcast, I heard it being in a few parts. One was the actual story of your actual main character who you document the abuse that he uh, committed. Then there's a wider lens, which is how is this allowed to happen? Talking about there needs to be a Me Too movement or maybe there's something of a Me Too movement for the uh, drug and substance abuse rehab industry. Then, I don't even know if it's a wider lens, but maybe the aperture shifts a little to what the people in this industry, or allegedly, and there have been charges, criminal charges, what they've done to target you to stop this story from getting out. So it must have been a total wild roller coaster ride, but let's start at the nub of the story. You're a reporter, you get a tip. It's about a pretty important uh, individual in the state. What were, what were your sources alleging right from the beginning? Yeah, so what I had done before I got this wild tip was I was just covering a, a COVID outbreak at one of this guy's facilities. So the guy we're talking about is named Eric Spofford, and the company he ran is called Granite Recovery Centers. And Granite Recovery Centers is like the umbrella organization for a bunch of facilities. And they still are, though he doesn't own it anymore, but at the time and now, they're the biggest provider of substance use disorder treatment that we have in New Hampshire. And you all know, everybody knows, New Hampshire is one of the states that was hardest hit by the opioid crisis. And so we've always been in desperate need of treatment. And so this guy, Eric Spofford, stepped up and provided a lot of that. And so I had found out that there was a COVID outbreak at one of his facilities. We were all doing COVID stories around, you know, early 2020. And this one in particular seemed important since, of course, the need is so great. But after I published the story about the outbreak there, I just got the wildest tip from a woman who was a former clinician who effectively said, like, you think that's bad, like, buckle up. And basically what she alleged was that she and a bunch of other people had quit because of allegations that Eric Spofford, again, the founder and owner of this place, had sexually assaulted a former employee or a current employee who was a former client and that he had been paying off women for years to silence them because more allegations were out there. And that multiple people, like I said, had quit because of this. And she gave me the numbers for some of the people who had quit. And I just was so blown away. But of course, Mike, as you know, like you get tips like this, you kind of you definitely need to check them out. Yes. And that was December of 2020. So suffice to say, I've been checking these things out for quite some time. So there were, in fact, uh, many, many members of the board and the most powerful people within the country who, there's no disputing this, they had quit. Yeah, so basically, uh, not just like anyone had quit. The COO had quit because of it. Uh, this guy who was uh, had written a book with Eric Spofford, who is the spiritual direct- director of the organization, he had quit. And then I recently, and then I eventually learned that the HR director was fired because of this. And so all along the way, not only am I starting to collect allegations from women who had experienced, who said they had experienced this behavior. I'm also hearing people had talked to people about this behavior, had quit because of it. So there was like a lot happening. And yet, this would never been covered. This had never been a local news story. Just there was nothing. Right. So let's establish for my listeners, okay, the biggest rehab center in New Hampshire. How big is that? I was pretty surprised to learn, pretty big. This guy's pretty rich and pretty powerful. Yeah, don't be knocking on New Hampshire. Small but mighty, okay, my dude? Okay, so no, I'm just kidding. So yeah, the thing you have to know is that though Eric started his company in 2008, ended up selling it at the end of 2021, 
you know, that's a long time to be in power. That's a lot of beds that the state really needed for treatment. But along the way, my understanding through my reporting is that his intent, in intent was to eventually sell it. And he has said online, though I've not seen any documentation that backs this up, but that he sold it for $115 million. Mm-hmm. That's a significant amount of money. And he's started all sorts of other businesses since. He rent, he has a yacht that he rents out. He does real estate transactions. and He's like now he's, an influencer guy from Miami trying correct. to highlight his lavish lifestyle. So. You can learn all about his business advice on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you had, there's an employee A and an employee B and different women. Let's take it in a couple parts. You documented the people that did quit and you also documented many women who alleged abuse. How many, on the record, off the record, women did you find who claim uh, to have been abused by Eric Spofford? Yeah, so I found multiple allegations of sexual misconduct, and they started kind of corroborating onto themselves. And the first one that we talk about in the podcast is a woman that we call Elizabeth. And I should say, Mike, the reason why we have this like alphabet of employees and, and pseudonyms is because a lot of these women were really afraid of retaliation from Eric. They were concerned about expensive legal battles that they couldn't afford. And I think yeah. the core of the show and the core of why they're so afraid is because many of these women are in recovery from substance use disorder. Some people want to keep that private, some people don't, but it's it's more that, you know, these are people who were in a vulnerable situation when they were interacting with Eric or were just exiting out of one. And so, you know, there, there's a lot happening there and, and they're building their lives back up. Right. And so they don't have the means to do an expensive legal battle with a person who right. is known to be litigious. So backing up. Elizabeth is the first one we hear about. Elizabeth was a client of one of the facilities of Granite Recovery Centers. She was going there for uh, opioid addiction. And she, the first day out of treatment, started receiving dick pics from Eric on Snapchat. Uh, This is, again, one day out of treatment. She'd been there for 30 days. So that means she's only been sober for 30 days. And a thing I really hope people learn from the podcast is, you know, active addiction is not the only vulnerable part of substance use disorder. This is a chronic, difficult disease that is difficult when the substance is put down as well. I mean, the, the toll that this has taken on your brain, you, as one of my sources said, you don't even know what color your favorite color is. You don't know how you like your coffee. You're literally putting the pieces of your life back together. And so to receive this message from a powerful person that had given her an opportunity, because I should say he also scholarshiped her to treatment, meaning he paid for her treatment, to open your phone the first day you get it back while you're sitting in a sober house and see a Snapchat of the owner's dick is, yeah. for her, was it sent her into a really complicated mental spiral. Right. Now, she, we should say that the dip, dick pics were sent on Snapchat. Snapchat disappears. You can't take a f- uh, screenshot of it. It will tell the person who sent it if you did. And so sh- you don't have that um, evidence. But she showed them to people who say, yeah, I saw them right away. So you have corroborating she, evidence. She told a friend. She told yeah. two friends at the time. And this, Mike, you know, you may know, and this has been a big learning experience, I think, for a lot of my sources to talk through, is that there isn't often physical evidence of sexual harassment or sexual assault, right? right? So the best thing a reporter can do in the next step, besides searching for any documentation of any piece of the story before or after, is asking, did you tell anyone? And right. Elizabeth, in this case, actually told two people as these Snapchats were coming in. And both of those people had conversations with her. One of them wanted to tell someone else, who then corroborated it to me. And uh, unfortunately, one of those friends has passed away from an over, um, an, of an overdose. And the other one I actually spoke with on the record, and he was able to corroborate her account. And I should say, Eric, you know, when I initially published this reporting, because a key part of the whole story is that I did publish some of these allegations in March of 2022. And that's when some of the retaliation and reaction that you just heard Mike describe, that's when that happened after that story. Yeah. But so... You know, when I went to Eric with this allegation and the others we'll talk about, he his lawyer threatened to sue us and he denied all allegations of misconduct. And I mean, just said there's no way, no how. But um, like you said, corroboration, very important in these stories. And so, all right. So I have Elizabeth who says that she's received these pictures a day after treatment. OK, then I hear an allegation from a woman we call employee A. She's not in recovery. She worked at one of the barracks facilities. And she alleges that she also received very similar Snapchats while working for Eric, explicit Snapchats, dick pictures. And then later she tells me that he sexually assaulted her in his office in the middle of the workday. This also is an allegation I corroborated with people she told at the time and later. Um, Eric again denies that this happened. 
And so, you know, that's what I say. Here we have, you know, two people who don't know each other, who have experienced similar sexual harassment through Snapchat. Then I hear the third allegation. And this is the one uh, that involves people quitting. The woman at the center of this allegation, she did not want to talk to me. She refused to talk to me. But I was able to talk with many, many former employees who had had one-on-one conversations with her that all, you know, it was like all the puzzle pieces just kept fitting together and together. And those are the employees we referred to earlier who quit or were fired because of this. And you have one guy named uh, Piers Kaniuka. Kaniuka, yep. Kaniuka, former director of Spiritual Life, which is important, who goes on the record with you using his name, saying that Eric Spofford is essentially the Harvey Weinstein of the recovery business. Uh, that is a phrase he later recants or wishes he hadn't said to you in an unusual document, which clearly was influenced by Eric. But you have important, this is more information than we literally had about Harvey Weinstein. These were higher up people in the organization um, confirming to you that these things happened. Yeah, this is when I started to really realize that we may be uncovering a pattern here because, of course, hearing allegations directly from women is is really remarkable. But then to hear also that there were multiple people who, you know, uprooted their lives in response to these allegations, then you're really like, well, how deep does this really go? And the thing I want to say about peers, too, that was fascinating, you know, so Piers, like you said, I had been talking to him for a long time. Um, He was one of the people who quit because of hearing these allegations, including directly from a woman we call Employee B, the woman who didn't speak with me. And he and I talked a lot of times. He's also the one who said that a Me Too movement was required in the the addiction industry. And later on, um, I received a letter from Eric's lawyers that was addressed to me and our board at NHPR, that's the station I work at, that effectively said, uh, see below for a statement from peers. And because of this, uh, as they referred to peers, I believe as our star witness or something, um, because of what is written below, you should take the story down. And I was like, what is this? And I scrolled down and sure enough, there's a letter from peers. It's like a quick statement. It's on our website if you want to read it. It's very much in the podcast. But he he basically says that he regrets speaking to me, mm-hmm. and and they his Eric's lawyers make it out to suggest that this is him recanting, and that means that all of my reporting, you know, now there's a huge hole in it, and none of it makes any sense. But you know, when I reflected on it, you know, Piers isn't one of the women ma- or or a person making a sexual misconduct allegation. You know, that all still stands, and 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 it's not that he's recanting; he just says he regrets speaking to me. But what was fascinating was just about a month, maybe, or a few weeks before I received this letter, it just so happened that I had talked to Piers after the story came out and asked him, just because of how intense all of this was and because, as people will hear in the podcast, my sources did face legal retaliation in the day after the story came out. I actually asked Piers, do you regret you know, talking to me for this story? And it's okay if the answer is yes. And he said no. And then it just so happened that the word regret was also in this statement that Eric's lawyer sent to me from Piers. We later learned from Eric's Facebook that Eric says that um, he threatened Piers with a lawsuit and that the statement is what came out of that. Um, So it has been like no reporting experience I have ever had. This one in particular has been a lot. Yeah. But the important point and why the podcast is called The 13th Step is because the phrase The 13th Step refers to the idea that after a 12-step program, uh, usually men will use the vulnerability of women in the program to hmm, hit on them, prey on them, uh, try to inappropriately, given how vulnerable everyone is, you know, use their position to... For, for sex, essentially. It's yeah. well known. It's sort of a, I guess, gallows humor type joke. And it gets to the deeper point, I think, or the more structural point of what you're trying to do, which is to show that this is a really unregulated industry with a lot of problems and a lot of opportunity for people to come in and, you know, look at it and scrutinize it like they did with the Me Too movement. Yeah, I mean, this has like been in the history of AA since the beginning of AA. Mm -hmm. And I think 
what was important to me was to show that there is, of course, a lot of value to the 12 steps. I mean, they've been, they were for a long time, the only option for many people to find recovery, but it can also be very much exploited. And I think that that's a really important thing to grapple with because at the core of all this and likely why it's been so impossible for all of these women or anybody who's been exploited or 13th step to come forward is because even still now in 2023, we as a society still don't always believe people with substance use disorder. We still don't treat substance use disorder as a disease like any other. And so there's already like the obstacle when you come forward with a sexual misconduct allegation that you won't be believed. Well, here it's even harder. And then there's not that much oversight over the industry because of the way that it came together and because of the stigma that underlies all of it. And so it just became clear and clearer to me as I continued reporting about Eric, but also about the industry, that this is really out there and it's not something that we're talking about enough. In the past, you've reported on politicians, often corrupt politicians. Uh, Rod Blagojevich is, went to jail for many years. You've covered politicians in New Hampshire. You've covered powerful people. Had you ever, and we will get to the circumstances in this case, but had you ever been physically threatened, personally intimidated? Had that gone on in your professional life? No. So to lay it out for my listeners, on one day... There were attacks on your parents' house, an old house that you rented, and uh -huh. your editor on this story. Rocks, um, messages scrawled on the wall. That was all on one day within hours of each other. Am I getting that right? Um, yeah, my parents, my old house, and my boss's house all had the C word spray painted in red. Uh, bricks thrown through windows, rocks thrown. Um, yeah, it was um, pretty shocking. And then a month after that, um, it was my house with uh, red spray paint, just the beginning. Just under this, the beginning. Just the beginning, exclamation point. And uh, a brick was thrown through this like big picture window in my living room. Um, and my parents' house got hit again, C word on the garage. Uh, this time though, the brick mixed, it missed the window. I just like to point that out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was pretty brutal. Not to diminish this, they don't seem like master criminals. One was captured pretty clearly on a uh, on a camera that you had outside your house, but still must have been unbelievably scary. And yeah. for many months, and arrests were made recently as of our talking, but for many months, you did not know who this was. Yeah, you and I are talking at a really wild time, Mike, because for most of my life for the past year and a half, it's been this strange thing where, you know, my immediate reaction was that it must be in response to the reporting, mm -hmm, but I still mm -hmm. didn't know who or how. And, um, you know, Eric ended up putting up out a statement because there was a lot of coverage about the vandalism. And Eric Spofford ended up putting up a statement out a statement saying that, you know, he would never condone this. He had nothing to do with it. However, uh, if it was someone, it might have been somebody who was trying to stand up for him because he's done so much good. Yeah. Um, that's not a direct quote, but that's a summary of, of his statement. And so, but beyond that, there were really, I mean, he basically offered a theory, but beyond that, I mean, I, I just, yeah, I saw a guy in a blue raincoat throwing a brick through my window, but I didn't know who he was. And so um, the FBI was investigating and on Friday, the 16th, I believe, um, the feds charged three men with conspiracy to commit interstate stalking. And that is because your house is in Massachusetts. They came from New Hampshire to do that. So that's why the, there was a federal charge. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it's to say it's been a lot is obviously an understatement. You know, I have to balance these two experiences of I'm the reporter who wrote the story, but I'm also victim one in the yeah. complaint, which is like not an easy read to see yourself as a victim one. Um, but at the same time, you know, for me, like the story was about my sources, right? The stories about the women who came forward and why they didn't. And, and then this all got wrapped up into a very strong example of why people haven't come forward. And I should also say that um, a few months after the vandalism, Eric sued me, two of my colleagues, and three of my sources for defamation. Um, and while a judge ended up throwing that out, granted our motion to dismiss a few months after, um, it's still a very much an ongoing legal situation. And so it's just been um, a lot. 
Was there ever a question among either you or other people at New Hampshire Public Radio or anyone with the ability to say we have to stop this investigation? Any uh, any question as to whether you would stop it just out of safety? No. I mean, of course, we um, have a lot of conversations about uh, how the trauma of all this impacts me and um, my colleagues. and But no, I mean, I think um, after reflecting about just the vandalism at my house for a while, uh, my takeaway has always been that uh, it's kind of like the point of the podcast. It's like, it's not just about one person. This isn't just about a brick through my window. Like I'm a journalist and I don't wanna be all like, you know, Pollyanna, but but honestly, like the first amendment is my right. I mean, my job is protected by the constitution. And so the idea that someone's gonna throw a brick through my window and I'm gonna stop doing my story. I mean, that's just not who I am. There is a part in the, story in the podcast where you say, look, my job is, of course, to just report the facts. Yeah. This is sort of to address the idea of now you're part of the story. But then you say, I think in the very next sentence, but these are the facts. Reporting what happens to me, even if it is to me, is absolutely part of the story and I have to do it. Was there ever a question or moment of hesitation about you being in the story as much as you were? Well, I think for myself, it was kind of like, a balance of like, well, how much do I want? Like I am in it now because of the vandalism, but like, I don't really need to be in it. In it, this story is not about me, right? I mean, what happened to me is a, just an example of the world of journalism right now and the experience of being a journalist in America. And so as far as I could just make that point, uh, that was important. But other than that, I, you know, I have a station that has insurance. I have a station that has a lawyer. I am protected by my station, right? I have editors. I have lawyers. I have my sources, some of them who were sued, don't have that. And yes. so that's really, it's not that I was hesitant. It's just that's really present in my mind that it's a podcast about power dynamics. And I also, you know, exist in a power dynamic with the people that I interview. And I I didn't need to be in it that much, you know? Lauren Trulgen is a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Her new podcast, The 13th Step, is filed and in the can, but since the story isn't over, neither is the podcast. New episodes will be dropping so you could follow it along. Thanks, Lauren. Good luck to you with everything. Be safe. Thank you. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, executive producer Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca runs special projects for this podcast and all of Peachfish Productions. The Gist can be advertised upon. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, gee, peru, do peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>